You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is the Artist Profile Series, episode 38. Okay, my friends, for this week's episode, we're going to do something a little bit different than previous artist profiles. Today, I'm going to introduce you to an artist who has fascinated me for much of this year as I've studied his work, his life, and the spiritual motivations that caused him to do some pretty bizarre things. I'm talking about an obscure German sound poet, theatrical performer, and mystic, Hugo Ball. You may not have ever heard of Hugo Ball before, but I'm sure you have heard of the Dadaist art movement of the early 1920s. Well, Hugo and his girlfriend, Emmy Hennings, were by and large the founders or the initial catalysts of this art movement, which started around 1916 in Zurich, Switzerland. I'll give you a little more information on Hugo here shortly, but what we're going to do differently in this episode is that rather than me reading you a scripted essay about Hugo Ball, I'm going to invite you into a conversation segment with visual artist, writer, and art critic Jonathan Anderson. Jonathan has written extensively about Hugo Ball in his incredible book, Modern Art and the Life of a Culture. For today's artist profile, I'm going to pull a segment from our conversation where Jonathan shares his insights about Hugo Ball, Dadaism, and the hidden spiritual meanings behind a movement that is largely considered nihilistic in nature. So to give you a little more context as we begin, my interest in Hugo Ball, as with most of the artists and mystics whom I talk about on this artist profile series, are those whose work either blurs the lines between art and faith, or those of whom it may be completely unexpected to discover that they had a Christian root behind their work or a special interest in spiritual matters. And Hugo Ball fits that description perfectly. Everyone knows that Dada was an atheistic, nihilistic art movement that sought to tear down not only tradition, but meaning itself. And so to discover that at the center of that movement was actually an artist who not only grew up in a Catholic family, but later returned to his Catholic roots and became a student of the mystics, as well as one whose bizarre theatrical performances were surprisingly informed by his faith, this is worth exploring. I'm your host, Stephen Roach, and this is the Makers and Mystics Artist Profile Series. Well, then talk to me about Hugo Ball, because I know that he had some Catholic underpinnings in his life that he wrestled yeah. with, right? And, and maybe for our listeners that, um, let's, maybe a better way to start is give us a short overview of who he is and why we're talking about him in the context of this conversation. Yeah, good, good, good. So Hugo Ball was, by all accounts, the founder, the kind of principal founder of the Dada movement, if we can call it that, or whatever it is, of Dada. (laughs) Whatever that was. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Of Dada activity in Zurich, which is where it really was born and and got started. And he he starts that in early, he and his partner, Emmy Hennings, and you kind of have to take them uh, both together. I think they're they're really a, uh, there's quite a partnership between them through the Dada years and then after as well. So Hugo Ball and Emmy Hennings found the Cabaret Voltaire is is what they is is where Dada starts in Zurich. 
in uh, February of 1916. So this is, and it's in Zurich, so it's in neutral Switzerland at the sort of, uh, you know, a pit of World War One. So all around this neutral Switzerland is just absolutely devastating warfare going on. Um, and so that's mm -hmm. a really important context, that, that what they're doing there is revolt <laughs> against yes a, it's in it's in response to the atrocities of the war absolutely. right absolutely yeah that's right um so uh, what you're alluding to or what you're mentioning there is is ball, if we look at ball specifically he was um raised in a catholic home quite a, a devout catholic home by all accounts in a primarily protestant uh, uh, area in germany so was really deeply influenced by this. He becomes very interested between 1910 and 1916, becomes very interested in anarchism and Friedrich Nietzsche, as one does also. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. And started writing a PhD dissertation on Nietzsche and did not finish the PhD. He, he uh, didn't finish his dissertation, uh, but got quite a ways into it. Uh, eventually... Uh, or quickly um, abandons that and moves uh, to Berlin, I believe, to work in theater. And he just thought theater is is like uh, I, I can't write about Nietzsche. I need to like you know do it <laughs> in in theatrical form. <laughs> so so uh, that's a sort of uh, founding of Dada. Dada is in Zurich is a short. It's fairly short period of time. It was only a couple of years, is that right? It was several years? Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, only a couple. I think he was involved for a total of, uh, you know, uh, less than two years, I think. Mm -hmm. And in 1920, he and Emmy convert back to Catholicism and become really ascetic mystics. Yeah. And Ball is writing a book called Byzantine Christianity, in which he's talking about, you know, uh, John Climacus and Dionysius the Areopagite and Simeon the, the, st the Stylite. Wow! And so, so the question I'm interested in is: so you got you got a, a Catholic upbringing, and then you've got a return to Catholicism, a very ascetic uh, Catholicism at the end of his life. These years, this decade or less in between, in which Dada, it, this Dada movement is kind of right in the center. What's going on with that? Is there is there rupture between his Catholicism at the beginning and the end uh, with Dada, or is there continuity, or is there some some mix, uh, some uh, kind of complicated uh, mix of the two? And I think that's probably the answer, some complicated mix. Yes. Um, but it's the yes. further I got into Ball's writing, and his work, what was happening at the Cabaret Voltaire, um, man, it's it is uh, deeply informed by Christian mysticism and by theolo overtly theological ideas. Wow! So that's a a brief intro to who a ball was. Yes, and you write about this in your book, Modern Art and the Life of the Culture, and and I'm looking at the chapter now, and you're talking about the work of the Dadaist and and with Hugo Ball, and you said. These meanings were deeply political, aesthetic, and philosophical, but they were also intensely theological, and they were so from the beginning. 
Talk to me more about how you find theological underpinnings in a movement that is considered to be very atheistic and nihilistic in nature, which kind of sought to dismantle modern convention in all forms. Tell me how you managed to find some <laughs> theological underpinnings. <laughs> yeah, good. Yes, good. Uh, so Dada is is a movement of disruption, of counterstructure. It is kind of an anti-structure movement in a lot of ways, anti-convention and questionable whether it's anti-tradition, but it's certainly anti, anti-structure, anti-convention. Mm-hmm. And that is, once again, happening in the midst of World War I. So it, there is, an, it's fundamental to Dada, an ethical outcry at the, at the center of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the thing is a no, a, a vehement no to the way we've been doing things. Yeah. And all of those structures whether they're cultural or political or economic or having to do with industry or rationalism and so on, all of those structures that have sent uh, Europe into World War I, that's what they're reacting to. And the, the sources for that revolt tend to be, uh, or the kind of philosophical sources, the philosophical underpinnings, tend to be either nihilistic Uh, As you uh, pointed out, Mm -hmm. there were some Dadas who were (laughs) vocally nihilist. Um, And and you you certainly get some of that with Ball's interest in in Nietzsche. There are various ways of reading Nietzsche, but there could be some nihilism there. (laughs) So there are are nihilistic philosophical underpinnings, but there are also mystical underpinnings. Uh, underpinnings. I mean, mm-hmm. anti-structure or resistance, a critique of structure and convention is not just the province of nihilism. It for forever, it has been the province of the prophetic, apophatic, theological form of reasoning that calls into question the ways that we've been corporately Sinning yes. <laughs> is the theological word for it. In in our patterns of living, in our patterns of language, in our uh, patterns of uh, collective practice, and you know that the whole tradition of of the prophetic, the prophetic tradition, the tradition of the holy fool, yes. of the people John uh, Climacus and Simeon, the stylite that uh, Ball later writes about. I mean, that is revolt against the world, the systems of the world that are theologically uh, grounded and oriented, not nihilistic. Mm -hmm. And I I read Ball as as of the latter. He's of the mystical strain of Dada. He's not the only one, but he's, he's certainly there. And that becomes clearer when you look at the work that they were doing in the Cabaret Voltaire, Da, uh, you know, Ball wrote this like mind-bending uh, nativity play, the Krippenspiel. Uh-huh. Uh, this this sort of Dadaist nativity play that is, you know, the Magi and the shepherds and everyone there, and it's noisy and it's chaotic, and it ends in a crucifixion in which everyone is wailing and screaming and and um, you know, and there's a hammering and so forth. And you know, in the Cabaret Voltaire, they would do readings from the 
Desert Fathers and from the mystics. I mean, there's a really strong wow. strain of it. So That's amazing. There's a lot of evidence from the, the Cabaret Voltaire itself. But then after Ball reconverts to Catholicism and goes up into the hills of Switzerland uh, to live this kind of ascetic life, and he's writing, one of the things he produces is his journals uh, from the Dada period, and he publishes them in a book called Flight Out of Time. Oh, wow. So Flight Out of Time, and it's his, it's his journal, his diary uh, through that time. It's edited, so it's controversial. How much did he edit it uh, after he uh, returned to Catholicism? Which sort of begs the question, like, why, why should we doubt that it didn't point him b back to Catholicism, what he was doing that time, because he actually did return to Catholicism. <laughs> so, so maybe that is what was going on during that time. Anyway, the way he, he's like writing, he's, during that time he's writing about what they're doing and why they're doing it in Cabaret Voltaire. And that's a wild read and really wonderful and also decidedly, uh, it decidedly reveals the theological mystical underpinnings of what they're doing with Dada. Wow. That's so incredible. You know, it's, it's so many things you said just got me excited here. And and one is simply that you brought up Simeon the Stylite. And I thought for a minute that I was the only person alive today that knew who this guy was. And I had no idea that Hugo Ball had written about him. But Simeon has been on my list. Uh, we do these artist profiles where I kind of just, you know, talk about a certain historical character. And Simeon has been one that I've wanted to oh, do. you should do it. <laughs> yeah, so that's pretty amazing. But I wanted to bring this up also because the Dadaist movement and some of Hugo's work, and I mean, I know some of what you're talking about that took place at the cabaret was just so bizarre. And and you've even got an image of him dressed up in his costume, which looks like an oversized tin man from <laughs> yeah. The Wizard of Oz or something, you know, but, but it's his magic bishop costume is what he calls it, you know? <laughs> And they did these incredible poems and things that were just nonsensical language and, and just very nonlinear ways of expressing what, as I hear you saying, some of that really was informed by, by theological yearnings or, or, you know, the being in the process of working out faith and doubt and things like that. You have this quote here from Erdmut Wenzel mm -hmm. in the book, and he argues that in Ball's case, we mustn't allow the apparent foolishness and bombastic rebellion to disguise the intense spiritual longings that informs all of his life and work. And I absolutely love that because, you know, we often think of reverence, piety, devotion as expressions of faith, as, as, as our most common expressions of faith. But we don't often consider that mischief, mm, humor, mm. protest are also very viable mm. expressions of faith. And they can also be very much informed by a theological underpinning. And I think that even goes back to kind of the meta narrative of our entire conversation today about how contemporary art is, is full of some theological yearnings inside of it. And I'd, I'd love to hear you speak about that a bit, how, whether it's in Dada or Hugo Ball specifically, or just in contemporary art, how these other expressions that we wouldn't 
immediately think of as expressions of faith, how they can still carry our spiritual yearnings. Yes, good. It's a it's a fabulous uh, uh, career worthy question, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I'm thinking a couple different things. Uh, first, uh, to speak to the general uh, uh, that question as it pertains generally to con- modern and contemporary art. I mean, I I think what we get so often throughout from 19th through 21st century art, including the major contributors to the the narrative and the existing narratives of, of the, those histories, what we get over and over again is not unbelief or opposition to belief, but belief under pressure, longings uh, that are consistently informed by religious upbringings, theological questions and concerns. They're consistently formed by those, but they're under pressure for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. And that pressure uh, produces all sorts of things that are disruptive, maybe heterodox. <laughs> you know, it produces lots of things, mm-hmm. but it is it is a very, it's a, it produces things that I'm very interested in theologically. It's theologically significant what happens when belief comes under pressure. Even when a belief uh, or those theological questions get scrambled, what, what gets produced is really revealing of so many of people's deepest yearnings, the ideas that they most care about, and the inherited theologies that do need to be put under pressure sometimes you know i mean in uh, mm-hmm. in, in world war 1 and world war 2 you do have deformed christian theologies and not just christian but you have deformed theologies that become extremely violent and become extremely problematic and to call those into question or for those to become pressurized or put under pressure is maybe theologically constructive and important mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean that's the that's the basis mm-hmm. of the prophetic uh, tradition all the way through yeah. is, is is that that <laughs> yes. theology um is full of all yes. sorts of problems that, that need to be put under pressure and that we can only put under pressure. Anyway, so I think generally that's quite interesting uh, to me and needs further thinking. Uh, our, our tendency has been for those involved in theology and, and wanting uh, you know, re- religious devotion, devoutness, which is great, have tended to be quite nervous about the way that modern and contemporary art sort of goes about that. And then on the other side, art historians have just generally ignored it or not really seen it or considered it worth paying attention to. And so there, there I think, is, a, is a, a needed corrective on, on both sides that can see the theological reasoning or longing or thinking that's going on in modern contemporary art and sort through it in a kind of thick, savvy way, agile way, you know, both art historically and theologically. Okay. So that's a kind of the general thing, but your, your, um, your question about humor and disruption, um, as being, uh, theologically important. I think that's, I think that's right. I mean, maybe that's linked to that call for agility theological agility. There, there's a, a British uh, theologian who's, who says that, you know, we, uh, named uh, David Ford, who says that 
uh, we tend to think of theology as only operating in the indicative mood where we say statements, this is the way that this is, or the imperative mood, this is what you should do. So indicative is this is, and uh, imperative is you should <laughs> do this. <laughs> but he says, no, the, the full range of uh, grammatical moods is, is what theology has always been and needs to be speaking in. And that includes the subjunctive mood, like the, the what if, the sort of playful perhaps, the, oh, that's beautiful. the interrogative move, one that operates primarily, principally in terms of questions. What, what about this? Why this? How this? And those, those, that interrogative mood can remain open-ended, needs to remain open-ended in the face of that to which it's trying to speak. <laughs> um, uh, but what, what else does he have the, the optative uh, mood and so on I, I mean like the full range of human grammar and human maybe not just human creations grammars the, the full range of them including the playful the protest the humorous like those those uh those are forms of theology, like the forms, you know, those are theological forms. <laughs> so, yeah. so good. That's so good. I love it. Yeah. Well, I have just a couple of more questions for you as we bring our conversation to a close. And, you know, one, this season on the podcast, we're exploring the relationship between art and identity or how art can inform our sense of self and, and how, you know, this dance, if you will, between art and belief. What are the questions that we are asking currently and how do these things relate? And even bringing that back to Hugo Ball, the search for himself and the search for his faith and the search for how art and faith worked out in his life, although we only see little glimpses of it from the writings and the things that we have to contend with, you can see that how the outward show of his life or what we have to reference, maybe it didn't always reflect what was going on in that inner person and, and where that inner wrestling is. But for you as someone who has walked both as an artist and someone who's also walked in the worlds of theology and, and wrestling through you know, faith concerns, how do you think about that relationship between our art and our identity or, you know, how faith and art work together in the construction of a person's self? Yeah, I mean, on, on questions of identity and, and arts, um, I, I suppose I feel fairly amphibious as, a, um, as someone who moves between the arts, the, the world of the arts, and the world of theology and those are kind of worlds like they're they're different grammars different histories different points of reference different communities of people that give structure to those worlds the world of the art the contemporary art world and the world of contemporary theology for instance and they do it does feel amphibious to move between those worlds sometimes like uh, uh, you know i'm on land uh, part of the time and in the water part of the time and each of those yes. worlds, um, you know, with identity, there is something structurally stable about each of us to some extent, right? There's a structural integrity to an amphibian that allows certain range of 
movement and certain forms of life in the water and certain forms of life on the land. But in each of those domains, something really different is called forth from the person, right? Mm -hmm. The amphibian just lives a different form of life. Different things are called out of him or her or it or whatever uh, in these different domains. And, and I feel that way. And I think that's important that, that I'm, I'm not living a double life or two, two different lives, but that identity is so relational itself in relation to others, in relation to a, a history, in relation to an inherited language, in relation to an inherited tradition or set of traditions. And one has to kind of improvise speech and activity that's fitting to that world and that set of inheritances. And so one is like, one is called, (laughs) Uh, there's a different kind of calling, so to speak, in different situations, different worlds. I think that's certainly the case with me. And the movement between those is actually really energizing. I see, you know, contemporary art doing theological things because I've spent time in in the theological domain. And I see theology doing contemporary art things because I've spent time in the contemporary art world. (laughs) Um, And and the kind of movement between them uh, allows a, a, a kind of correspondence between domains of thought that might not be communicating directly to each other very often. So in some sense, that is a, the in-betweenness or the shuttling between the, the acts of translation, the amphibiousness is like important to my identity as an artist scholar um, because mm-hmm. it's the, it's, you know, activating the set of gifts that I've been given and it's activating it in a way that is responsive to these, these contexts and traditions and histories that I find find myself in so i i see that certainly with me and and also you mentioned ball how does it relate mm. to ball i think that is true for him as well what he was doing with dada was situational it was he was called perhaps by god but certainly by the historical i mean you know god is calling <laughs> all of us like there's a there's an enduring call that runs through it Every, all being, I think, all forms of being. <laughs> um, but uh, Ball was also called by his historical circumstance, called into responsive speech and uh, responsive action. And that response, to some extent, is his uh, important part of his identity, reveals his identity as an artist, but doesn't exhaust like who he is or finalize who he is. He's, he's in one sense, he's Dada. But he's not Dada, you, you know. There's mm-hmm. there's a there's a a, a further call yes. that he respond that he did continue to respond to. Yes, Jonathan, thank you so much for spending this time with me today on Makers and Mystics podcasts. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I hope to have many more with you in the future, my friend. Yes, good. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Stephen, and th- and thanks for the uh, wonderful work you do on Makers and Mystics. It's a it's a real gift to uh, so many of us. And thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics Artist Profile Series. Be sure to see the show notes of this episode for links to Jonathan Anderson's works, as well as for more information on Hugo Ball and the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective. We'll see you again next week. 
And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.